So what we're going to do today and next Sabbath is talk about the big picture of what's taking place in the sanctuary. And it fits in right at the tail end of our third chapter, Exodus here. We're in sort of Exodus chapters 25 to 40, and then right into the book of Leviticus. And so uh, today and the next Sabbath, we'll have two parts, big picture overview of this great truth of the sanctuary. And so a little bit of a heads up about what's coming. Uh, Let's pray together. Father, you've already been with us in a beautiful way in the singing and in that beautiful children's story where we learn that when, when we give up something, there's always something greater in return. And Father, you've ministered to us in the offering, and we turn our attention now to you in Scripture. And we know that you have revealed yourself in Scripture, and we ask that you will now come through the foolishness of preaching and reveal yourself in this room. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. Somebody alluded to it, might have been Paul in the introduction, the preamble to the last worship service that set there. There are a great many things that people who are not Seventh-day Adventists, and this is the Seventh-day Adventist church, I recognize that not everybody who's here is a Seventh-day Adventist, but I want to speak now a little bit of in-house information about what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist. There are a great many Christians of other stripes and flavors and persuasions that would regard many things that Seventh-day Adventists do and believe as strange and unusual and idiosyncratic. And that's probably true in fairness, that there are a great many things that we believe and that we hold to that the wider Christian world and the wider unbelieving world would regard as unusual. However, most of the sort of unique or idiosyncratic things of Seventh-day Adventists are held by some other religious groups or denominations. Um, For example, one of the things that people would sort of regard as unusual or peculiarly Seventh-day Adventist would be the Sabbath. But of course, there are many groups of people that keep Sabbath, including but not limited to the Jews. And so even though that in some sense is, is peculiar to us, it's not unique to us. Um, We also eat in a certain way, and while that is peculiar to us, it's not unique to us. Seventh-day Adventists believe that when you die, you sleep the sleep of death, and you await the resurrection at the return of Jesus. Here again, uh, that is peculiar to Seventh-day Adventism, but it's not unique to Seventh-day Adventism. There are other denominational groups and individuals within those denominations that believe the biblical doctrine of when you die, you sleep and await the resurrection. However, when it comes to... The, se- the corpus of Seventh-day Adventist teaching, there is something that Seventh-day Adventists uniquely hold, and that is the sanctuary. Not that we're the only ones who believe in the sanctuary, because, of course, the sanctuary is taught both uh, in the New and the Old Testaments, but the unique prophetic significance and the salvific significance of the sanctuary is something that is uniquely Seventh-day Adventist. And, and I'll go right out on a limb here, uh, I will go so far as to say that I think a, um, an unfortunate number of people who would identify as, self, as Seventh-day Adventists could actually articulate why we believe what we believe about the sanctuary and why it matters. And so it's quite fascinating that this is the thing that sort of uniquely sets Seventh-day Adventists apart from other denominations, various stripes of, of the Christian world. But even within the Adventist community, I would say that general biblical literacy probably tends to be reasonably high compared to other churches' denominations. But when it comes to that unique thing that sets us apart, my experience as an evangelist of two decades has been that literacy about this is actually very low. And uh, I've not seen anything yet in this congregation that has persuaded me that you are exceptions to the rule. Right? Now, there are certainly some people here that could give great studies on the sanctuary and that understand it very well. However, there's a very good chance that most of us here in this congregation, like most Seventh-day Adventist congregations in Australia, would have some general awareness. Oh, yeah, 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 that sanctuary, that's pretty important. But if it really came down to the brass tacks, the, the task of explaining it and saying why it's important or even giving some sort of vague articulation of it, I think many of us would be hard-pressed to do that. And so what we're going to do today and next Sabbath is talk about the big picture of what's going on in the sanctuary. In the larger flow of what's happening in Exodus, if you think about the book of Exodus, it's basically largely the story of, of course, the exit from Israel up to 
Mount Sinai, right? That's the story of the Exodus experience. And Jared and Daniel have done an excellent job of preaching us up to the point that we are now at in Scripture. But when you get to Exodus chapter 25 and extending all the way to the end of Exodus, 40 chapters in Exodus, I believe. Let me just double check that. For the most part, beginning in chapter 25, right down to the end, chapter 40, it largely dwells around God giving very specific instructions about the sanctuary, about the tabernacle, and how it should be set up, and what the priest is to do, and what sacrifices should be offered, and and where it's to be built, and how it's to be arranged, how the individual pieces of furniture should be put together. I mean, it's really like reading an instruction manual, uh, frankly. And then you get into the book of Leviticus, and it's the same kind of thing. Most of us, I think, would really struggle to articulate why these instructions are so detailed, so important, and beyond that, some of us might be thinking, what's the big deal, man? Jesus has come now. All of that stuff was Jewish. It was theirs. It's, you know, uniquely and idiosyncratically Jewish. We're now Christians. This is the new covenant. This is the New Testament. Jesus has come and who cares about, you know, bring this and bring that and and certain kinds of offerings and certain arrangements of... No, 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 no. So, here's the thing I want you to try and understand. If you're sitting here today as a Seventh-day Adventist or if you're sitting here today as somebody who is wondering about Seventh-day Adventism, let me say this. I have heard some well-meaning, but I think ultimately um, well-meaning Seventh-day Adventists, even in this church, who have said, man... We need to be hearing more about the end times. Jesus is coming soon. How come we're not hearing more about the end times? We need to be hearing more about Jesus is coming soon. Okay, sure enough. That is a part of Scripture. However, funnily enough, fascinatingly enough, if we don't understand the undergirding structure of why we believe that Jesus is coming soon and why we believe what we believe about Daniel and Revelation... What does it matter if you have a pastor that stands up front and gets you all frothed up and hyped up about the soon return of Jesus and none of us understand the actual biblical basis for why we believe what we believe? Are you with me? Yes or no? Which is why we started in this church, I envision that we'll be here for a number of years, with a systematic walkthrough of, well, let's start with where the Bible starts, the Old Testament, etc. Now, let me just give it to you very simply here. You have up on the screen that this is a matter that is a very, very big deal. Let me just break it down for you here. If Seventh-day Adventists are wrong about Exodus and wrong about Leviticus, okay, then we are wrong about the sanctuary. Okay? We have a particular perspective on the sanctuary. We have a particular understanding of the centrality of the sanctuary and the prophetic nature of the sanctuary. But here's an interesting thing. If we're wrong about Leviticus, we're wrong about the sanctuary. But it gets even more amazing. If we're wrong about the sanctuary, we are wrong about the book of Daniel. Now, if we're wrong about the book of Daniel, then we are wrong about what's the next book on there. We're wrong about the book of Revelation, and if we're wrong about the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, and the sanctuary, then we are wrong about basically everything. So the stakes are very high, right? It's not just like, oh yeah, that's just a little thing that Seventh-day Adventists believe. It's kind of cute, it's unusual, and talk now about the soon return of Jesus. Let me tell you. The only reason that we have something to say about the soon return of Jesus is because we believe we have something unique to say about Exodus and Leviticus, which leads us to have something unique to say about the sanctuary, which leads us to have something unique to say about the prophecies of Daniel, which leads us to have something unique to say about the prophecies of Revelation. And only when I am satisfied that we as a congregation understand why we believe Jesus is coming soon will we start to hear lengthy sermons about that. Does that make sense? Okay. I know that there are a whole lot of Seventh-day Adventists that believe that Jesus is coming soon. And I get that. And yet, when you put the pressure to them, why do you believe that? How can we be so certain? Well, you know, the Pope is doing this, and the United States is doing this, and all of this sort of, you know, it's like getting your understanding of the Bible from the newspapers, or worse yet, from the internet, right? We're like, we're just sure that Jesus is coming soon. Well, just forgive me for saying this. I would much rather prefer my convictions about the return of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus to come from Scripture than from what the media is saying or whatever happens to be contemporaneously happening right now. Are you with me on that? So this is hugely important for us. Hugely important for us to get this right. Because if we get this wrong, we get basically everything wrong. Now, having said that, let me begin by saying this. 
There are several things in the Bible that I find really disturbing. And probably if you were being uh, frank, you would agree. One of the things that I find most disturbing is the insistence on animal sacrifice. Right? I, I don't know how many of you have paid attention to this giant story that has swept through at least the United States. The killing of Cecil the lion. Right? Have you heard about this? And just massive outrage when this wealthy dentist from Minnesota went over and killed a beloved lion from, I think it's the Hwangi National Park there in Zimbabwe. People all upset, hugely frustrated, and frankly, I resonate with a disconnectedness from trophy hunting. And yet, we are confronted with the reality that in the Bible, there, like the whole infrastructure of the Bible revolves around animal sacrifices. I find this uncomfortable, right? The idea, I would never expect you to bring some sort of an animal into this building and slay it as an act of worship, right? That would, we would call the police on you. We'd be like, yeah, we got this person, he's here with a goat and a knife, can you just, it's really disturbing, can you come get him? And yet, the whole of scripture is built, the whole of the sort of infrastructure of scripture is built around this idea of sacrifice, and it's always up until the time of Jesus, animal sacrifice. Now, I want to introduce you to what I regard as one of the central paradoxes of the entire, of all of Scripture, the entire Bible. And that is that God sets up a whole elaborate system called the sanctuary. He sets up a priesthood. He sets up an altar. And he says, these are the offerings that have to be given. And they have to be given in just this way, for just this purpose, at just this time. And yet... That same God who's very particular about the nature of these animal sacrifices actually says over and over again in the same Bible that he doesn't want these animal sacrifices. Now let me just show you a few of them. This is Samuel and he's speaking to Saul and he says, verse 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Okay, short version, God wants obedience, not sacrifice. Okay, come with me now to Psalm 50. Right in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 50. And we'll read another one here, quite remarkable. Psalm 50, we'll pick it up in verse 7. It says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all the fullness." Will I eat the flesh of bulls or will I drink the blood of goats? Okay, here's a passage where God is basically saying, your, your sacrifices and your offerings are continually before me, but maybe you hadn't thought about the fact that I own the cattle on a thousand hills and I own all the wild beasts of the forest. Right? So, so you're, you're not giving me something that I don't already have access to. I'm the creator. Why are you bringing these things before me? In fact, I love what he says here. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Now go to Psalm 51, very next chapter in the Psalms. This is a well-known psalm to many. And verse 16 is just as plain as the noonday sun. Psalm 51, verse 16. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Language cannot be plainer. You do not want bloody animal sacrifices. That's not what you're after. Okay, let's go to another. Isaiah chapter 1. Join me. You're in uh, Psalms there. Move forward just ever so slightly. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. Can you give me the next one? Great, thanks. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Okay, and then the last one here. Next one, Nate. I think it's our last one. Micah chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord, the prophet asks, and bow down myself before the exalted God? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Next slide. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my, first, my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit, of body, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Okay, now just keep that up there, Nate, for a bit. Several passages here. Isaiah, the Psalms, Samuel, Micah. In every passage, we find God saying, in each of these passages, and this isn't all of them, this is just a representative sample, God is essentially saying, I don't want sacrifices. You think I'm going to drink the blood of goats and bulls and eat the flesh of lambs? Are you kidding? If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you anyway. The, the cattle on a thousand hills belong to me. And so what's going on here? Where is this, this paradox where God says, in the, in the, end of chapter, uh, the end of Exodus and the whole of Leviticus, this is the sanctuary, this is the sacrifices, this is what the priest does, these are the systems, and I'm really particular about it. And then... That same God who sets this whole sacrificial system up has the temerity to then say to us, well, I don't really want the sacrifices. I I don't really want you to bring me bloody sacrifices. What I'd rather have is obedience. What I'd rather have is humility. What I'd rather have is a contrite spirit. Now, what's going on here? Why the paradox? Well, right at the end of Micah chapter 6, verse 7, this passage here is a huge insight. And it says... Micah's exasperated here, right? He basically says, okay, if I'm going to bring my best bull, I'm going to bring my best goat, I'm going to bring the best out of my flock, well, the next logical progression, if that's the kind of God that we serve, who wants the best and who takes the best, Micah then asks a very problematic question. He says, okay, well, maybe if I just moved out of this whole animal thing, Move beyond the bulls, beyond the goats, beyond the rams. I'll bring my own son. Right? Uh, Should I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And frankly, this is a very logical progression. Because if God is the kind of God that's looking for you to bring him the best, to show your faithfulness, to show your devotion, to show that you recognize that he is God, well then, the next level of commitment, the next level of devotion the next level of your faithfulness would be, hey, bring not just an animal, but bring your very child. Here's a fascinating thing about the sacrificial system. We're now up to the Exodus. We've been through basically Genesis, and now we're into around Exodus chapter 25 and beyond. But here's a remarkable thing. The author of Exodus, Moses, assumes a basic understanding about the sacrificial system, and never explains it. Okay, the book of Genesis does not tell us anything about the origination or or even the meaning behind the sacrificial system. Not a word, not a whisper. It just assumes it. Now, what I've put together for you here is just a simple recap of the sacrificial system in the book of Genesis. This is every text that I'm aware of in the entire book of Genesis that tells us about what's happening in terms of the sacrificial system. The first is right in Genesis chapter 3, where God made them coats of skins, right? It doesn't take a a, a physicist to figure out that in order to get coats of skins, an animal had to die. This is the first implicit reference to the sacrifice of an animal, okay? Then we come right to Genesis chapter 4, and we have Cain and Abel. Again, no backstory. We're not told why God requested the particular offering or what the particular offerings meant or why Cain's offering was unacceptable and Abel's was. Moses just assumes literacy. He assumes awareness. So here's the sacrificial system, right? In Genesis chapter 4, we're confronted with it. Then we get to Genesis chapter 8. Noah comes off of the, the ark. The dry land has appeared, and Noah offers sacrifices to God on an altar, okay? Offers sacrifices. Then Genesis chapter 15. This is after the call of Abraham, God's covenant man. And remember, Abraham says, God, how do I know that you'll keep this covenant that you say you will keep? And God says, go get me five animals, a ram and a goat and uh, uh, I forget the other one, a heifer, and cut them in two. Sacrifice them. And then we come to Genesis 22, the offering of Isaac. So I want you to feel the flow of Genesis here. What's going on at the sanctuary? The primary purpose of the sanctuary was to bring your offerings to whether it was a guilt offering or a sin offering or a thank offering or a whatever. There was various kinds of offerings. And God is saying, here's the system, here's the priest, here's the arrangement, here's the offerings. It has to be done in this very particular way. And yet, 
we are also confronted with the reality that God says, I don't want these sacrifices. I don't desire these sacrifices. Should I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? So in understanding sort of what's happening in the sacrificial system, Moses introduces this to us and tells us basically nothing about the origin of the sacrificial system. But for me, and I hope for you as well, the key hinges on the story in Genesis 22. So we're going to do an unusual thing here. In studying Exodus, we're going to go back to Genesis. So join me in Genesis 22. This is a story that we've already actually preached on. Nathan Renner, you might recall, preached on Anzac Day on the offering of Isaac. But we need to remind ourselves of what's going on here. Because recall that, as we just read a moment ago, at the end of Micah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, Micah takes the next logical progression. Right? If God wants the best bull and the best goat without blemish and without fault, well then maybe I'll just make the next step and I'll bring my own son, my own daughter, and sacrifice them. Well, we're confronted with that very reality in Genesis 22 where God says to, to Abraham, take your son and offer him as a burnt offering. Let's remind ourselves of what's happening here. We'll pick it up in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Whoa, here we are. We're confronted with the very thing that we're discussing. On one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and he saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and he went to the place that God had told him. Then on the third day, it was a long journey to get there. So they arrive at the place, third day, Abraham lifted his eyes up and he saw the place afar off. So it's a lengthy journey, several days, and he's still not quite there yet. Verse 5, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. By this time, Abraham's 120 years old. Isaac would have been, we don't know exactly how old, but he would have been in his late teens. He was a young man. He would certainly be in the throes of early manhood. And Abraham, even though he's going to live to be 175 years old, is certainly an old man by this point. And so he's brought some helpers with him to bring the wood or whatever else might have been necessary, the food and provisions. And he says to them, hey guys, wait here. The lad and I are going to go and worship and we will come back. Now, Abraham knows something that nobody else knows, not even Isaac. That part of what it's going to mean to worship God on this day is to offer his son as a sacrifice. Abraham is hugely confused. Right? But he's going through with it. I mean, it already doesn't make sense to Abraham because first he had said to God, God, how am I going to be the father of many nations and have children and descendants as the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky if I don't have any descendants? Well, now God has given a promised son. He has a descendant. And God, in what can only be described as a counterintuitive command and a a wild command, says, hey, take your son and go kill him. Your promised son, your only son, the one through whom all of your descendants will come. So Abraham would have been a bundle of confusion, a bundle of emotions, but he senses that this is the same God who is speaking in the same way, and so he goes along with it, okay? Let me ask you this question. If you had the sense, I'm asking honestly, if you had the sense that God was asking you to sacrifice one of your children, to kill them, would you do it? This is a very easily answered question. Let me answer, ask it again. If you had the sense that God was asking you to kill one of your children as a sacrifice, would you do it? Of course you would not. No way you would not do it. Abraham, however, feels compelled at some level to obey. Why might that be? Why might it be that Abraham is here not only considering, but actually going through with something that you and I would never do? We would say, no way, I can't offer my son. And here's part of the reason why. Abraham's culture is a culture in which child sacrifice is part of the way that you worship certain gods and certain deities. This is is the way that gods roll, man. You know, the god over on that side of the mountain or the god from that nation or the god from that culture or whatever... Child sacrifice is one way to show your supreme devotion or perhaps to assuage the guilt of an angry God. In other words, this isn't happening in a vacuum. 
This is a part of Abraham's culture. This is, there are nations that have historically, I did just a little bit of reading on it again last night to remind myself that child sacrifice as repugnant and as grotesque and as disgusting and as insane as that sounds to us, this has been a part of, of sort of human reality and human religious systems for millennia. And so when God says to Abraham, hey, Abraham, take your son bring him to the top of the mountain, and plunge a knife through his chest, Abraham is confused. He doesn't understand how this can be the God that will then enable him to fulfill the promise to have descendants as the stars of the sky, but he goes along with it. How? Why? Because at some level, and listen carefully, Abraham has bought into the larger, or is at least willing to go along with the larger cultural dynamic of his day that that's the way that gods work the gods are taking the gods want and if they need to be pleased or their wrath needs to be assuaged or otherwise placated maybe a bull would do maybe a ram would do or maybe if there's a really particularly difficult situation or god is really keyed up you bring your son and so abraham This is not something that would have been totally foreign to him. He would have heard of this before. And now he's thinking, okay, well, you know, I guess this is the way that God operates. This God that I've been serving now for the better part of 25 or more years. Verse 6. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, hey, dad. And he said, here I am, my son, panged with guilt. The story is flat on the page. You know, we just read it. It's a pretty flat story. But the emotional and intellectual anguish through which Abraham would have been going would have been palpable. I mean, Abraham is just devastated. He loved this boy. Remember, God even said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him. Hey, Dad, Isaac says innocently. And he says, here I am, my son. And he said, hey, look, here's the fire, for the, uh, the, here's the fire and the wood, and, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, and the whole gospel is contained in verse 8. The whole gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is contained in verse 8, and he doesn't even yet know that it's the gospel. He says, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. God will provide the lamb. Now, Abraham thinks that he's just saying this to sort of side skirt the question that's been put directly to him. Hey, Dad, where's the lamb? We got all the accoutrements. We got all the stuff. But where's the lamb? And Abraham is just sort of sidestepping it. Oh, God will take care of the lamb. In other words, I'm not ready to reveal to you yet that you're the lamb. Abraham doesn't even know he's just preached the gospel. God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Verse 8, and Abraham said, my, uh, verse 9, Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there, and he placed the wood in order. You can see him, he's delaying, right? Like, okay, let's get the altar ready. Okay, let's arrange the wood. He's delaying to the last possible moment. But at some point, you have to have that conversation. At some point, there has to be disclosure. At some point, you have to say, okay, Isaac, here's the deal, bro. Uh... It's you. You're the guy. And he bound Isaac, his son, and he laid him on the altar. And again, the story is quite flat on the page. One thing we can be certain of is that Isaac, as a young man, would have been fully capable of escaping the overtures of his father had he desired. So there's, there's a mutuality here in the sacrifice. Not only, is God, not only is Abraham requesting, but Isaac is agreeing. He's acquiescing to it. And so he binds him, and this is so awesome. Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. Now, just pause right there. Let me just read you this very quickly here. This is a point I made earlier. Sacrifice belongs to the very infrastructure of biblical theology and religion. This is from Angel Rodriguez uh, uh, in the Handbook of Seventh-day Adventist Theology. Interestingly, the origin of sacrifice is not explicitly stated anywhere in the Old Testament. It's just not there. Nobody's talking about the origin of it. As we've already mentioned in Genesis, it just appears. The first time one is mentioned and no, no particular reason is given for it. And that's the, the, the issue of the origin is not addressed. That's Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. In subsequent records, the meaning of sacrifice is implied but never openly discussed. 
okay? And now we end up in Genesis chapter 22. We've been moving sort of logically. Yep, Genesis 3, coats of skins. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Genesis 8, Noah offers this thing. Genesis 15, Abraham cuts some animals in half as an animal sacrifice to confirm the covenant. And then we come to this wild and woolly story of Abraham being asked, commanded, required, kill your son now. And Abraham goes along with it. He's like, okay, well, I, I, guess, I guess that's the kind of God that I'm serving. I guess I want to show my devotion. He's been good to me up to this point. I'm following him. I've been doing this for decades now. And again, I want to say that the white noise of Abraham's culture would have been familiar with this idea of child sacrifice. And so he's like, okay, let's do it. Let's go along with it. And a remarkable thing happens that will be really clear for those of us that have been studying here at Kingscliff. Verse 11 but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, oh, here I am. Now, for those of us that have been through the book of Acts, and, and I've already mentioned this point once before, when this sort of dual name is used in Scripture, it appears to be used in a situation where God is arresting the attention of the person and saying, this is not the way reality works. In each of these instances that are up here, Moses, Moses, hey Moses, I didn't call you to have you wandering around the desert like a shepherd. Moses, Moses, what you think is the nature of reality is all wrong. Moses, Moses. Martha, Martha, oh, Martha was whinging and whining that Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and says, hey, Jesus, tell Mary to help me out. And Jesus protests and says, actually, Martha, Mary has got reality right. Martha, Martha, you are mistaken about the nature of reality. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you think you're the awesome city, the one that sits atop the pinnacle of the revelation of God, but you're actually the one who stones the prophets and kills those that are sent to her. What you think the nature of reality is, is nothing like that. Oh, Simon, Simon, I hear you saying that though all men deny me, you will not deny me. Simon, Simon, what you think is the nature of reality is not. Before the cock crows three times, Simon, you will deny me. And finally, Saul, Saul. We went through this in Acts chapter 9. Saul was just sure he was doing the will of God. He was uh, doing the work of God. He was taking Christians and placing them in jail. And when God appears to him, he doesn't just say Saul. Saul, Saul. That's a biblical marker to let you know. Er, hit the brakes. You turn. You are misunderstanding fundamentally the nature of the situation in which you are now engaged. In every instance... So when God goes to interrupt, by the way, this is the first occurrence of the double name. When God goes to speak to Abraham, he doesn't just say, hey, Abraham, stop. No, 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 no. The, the initiation of the biblical marker, Abraham, Abraham, you are in the midst of a colossal misunderstanding about the nature of reality and the nature of God. Don't even think of putting your hand on the boy. And just at that moment, a remarkable thing happens. Check this out. Abraham, Abraham, he said, here am I. And he said, do not put your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I now know that you fear God since you have not withheld from me your only, your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and there was a ram caught in the thicket by its horn. So Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Wow, come on. This is a theme now. This is an inescapable theme. Back in, back in Genesis chapter 3, God made them coats of skins. He had said to Adam and Eve, you will die. But they didn't die. Right? A biblical theme has now emerged in which God is saying someone or something is going to die. And here's a remarkable point. In this story, not only is it an actual event, an actual history of two actual people, Abraham and Isaac, it's also a metaphor, an analogy, a symbol of something. And it's not easy to, it's not, it's not hard to miss. It's very, uh, it's hard to miss. It's not easy, it's not difficult to see. In this sort of story, Abraham clearly represents God the Father. Right? And there's God the Father and, and he's about ready to, so if Abraham is God the Father, then who would Isaac be? Who would Isaac be? Yeah, Jesus. Everybody says Jesus. But of course, that's exactly the wrong answer. Yeah, it, it, Isaac can't represent Jesus because Isaac doesn't die. Isaac does represent somebody. Isaac represents us. There is uh, something in the story that represents Jesus. Who's that? That's the ram. And by the way, there's huge symbolism here. And just follow this very briefly. In ancient Jewish times, a, 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 a society that was built around animals, 
um, not only domestic animals but also wild animals, they would notice that whether it was an ibex in the, on the rocky cliffs or a, a ram in their own uh, herds, that when two animals got into a fight, two males, that generally it was the one with the larger horns that prevailed. Right? So like you got the bigger horns and it's fighting against the animal with the slightly smaller horns and they're bashing their heads and they notice, hey, man, the one with the bigger horns tends to win. So, horns come to be representative of power or strength. And you find this again and again in Scripture where God says things like, I have exalted the horn of my salvation, the power of my salvation, horn. Horns, as we get back to the sanctuary, actually were on the corners of the altars. Power! But here's a remarkable thing. This ram, I mean, God could have just put the ram there and been caught up in any old willy-nilly way. No, 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 no. How is the ram caught? By its horns. Check this out now. As a symbol of Jesus, the very source of its power is bound up with thorns and thistles. And in the context of Genesis, this is sin. Thorns and thistles the world will bring forth now after the sin of Adam and Eve. So here's God. Here's the ram, right? We're coming to that in just a second. Here's the ram, symbolic of Christ, wrapped up by his power in the sinfulness of the world. And Abraham goes and takes this ram that God has provided and he offers it there as a sacrifice. What's the message? There's a lot of them. The first is, God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm not the kind of God that would require you to sacrifice your son. I know there's other gods. The God on the other side of that river, the God on the other side of that hill, the gods of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Amel- whatever. There are gods that ask this and require this. I use gods in parenthesis here. I'm not one of them. Now, with this in mind, I want to show you a couple things here. Abraham names the place Yahweh Yaire. He calls the name of the place where God has come through a marvelous deliverance, a miraculous deliverance, where just at the moment when he was ready to plunge the knife into his son, an animal comes. And he's like, whoa, man, God has provided. Well, that's what he had just said a few verses before. Hey, Dad, where's the ram? Where's the lamb? Oh, son, God will provide himself a lamb. We could even translate that this way. God will provide a lamb himself. God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm not like those other gods. Why was Abraham willing to offer his son and you wouldn't? Because you now know that's not the kind of God we serve. Abraham, up to this point, knew that God was good. He knew that God was kind. He knew a lot of things about God. But he was still hearing the larger cultural white noise in which there were gods that requested, hey, kill your son. That would bring me a lot of pleasure. This story, we all often tell this story about how faithful Abraham was. And man, Abraham really to the end of the, man, he was so faithful. That is not really the story. Abraham was going along with something that he was hugely confused by. Certainly it required faith. But the real story is not so much about Abraham's faith as of God's faithfulness. God comes through in a pinch. In fact, God says, Abraham, I was never, ever, ever. Now, I want to take you to a passage of Scripture, mind-blowing. Go to Jeremiah 19. Jeremiah 19. If we're going to understand the sanctuary... We're going to have to understand the nature of sacrifice. Go to Jeremiah 19. Because remarkably, the very mountain upon which Isaac is offered is the very mountain upon which the temple will be built. Mount Moriah is the very place that the temple will eventually be built. And here, the first ever, the primordial sacrifice that's offered is a sacrifice in which God says, Hey, look, Abraham, it's not about what you give up. It's about what I give up. It's not about what you bring. It's about what I bring. And in Jeremiah 19, you've got to see this. This is mind-blowing stuff here. Verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Go to the potter's earthen flask and take some of the elders of the people, some of the elders of the priests. Go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom. That was the Jerusalem city dump, which is by the entry to the potsherd gate. And proclaim there the words of the Lord that I will tell you and say. Now this is God saying to, Ab- uh, God saying to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, gather up the elders of Israel, bring them out to the city dump and say this to them. Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. 
Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, their ears will tingle. I'm going to wreck this place. I'm going to wreck this temple. I'm going to wreck this city. In fact, it's going to be such a thorough devastation that when people hear about the thoroughness of this devastation, their ears are going to tingle. Why? Why? What's up, God? Verse 4. Because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place. Some translations say a foreign place. Now just let this sink in. Jerusalem is God's city. The temple is God's temple. And God here has the audacity to say, Jeremiah, you say to those people, you say to them that I'm going to wreak a massive catastrophe here in my city, in my temple. And here's why. I'm an alien in my own city. I'm a foreigner in my own temple. Why? Why would you be a foreigner or an alien? Because they have burned incense in it to other gods whom they neither, neither their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. They have filled this place with the blood of innocence. Verse 5. They have built high places of Baal and burnt their sons in the fire as a burnt offering to Baal. Now watch this. Which I did not command or speak and which never came into my mind. Okay. God says, you tell, what's going on here? Because we, we got a problem. God says, this idea that somebody would offer their child and that I would be pleased with that, that I would say, what a great act of devotion, what a great act of worship, what a great act of loyalty. Ah, thank you for being so willing. God says, you have turned me into a foreigner, into an alien in my own city and in my own place because you would do this repugnant, disgusting, perverse, satanic thing I, ca- I can't even show up here. God says, I never ask you to offer your sons. And then he says, this never even came into my mind. I'm not... The idea. What do you think I am, Moloch? One of the kings of Israel, a guy by the name of Ahaz, is hugely condemned in Scripture because it says Ahaz made his son walk through the fire to Moloch. And God says... This, this never even breached my mind. Now, here's a problem. The best known, most quoted, best loved verse in the whole Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. Well, what's going on here? Out of one side of his mouth, God says... Child sacrifice never even came into my mind. And out of the other side of his mouth, mouth, he says, the gospel is that I gave my son. Well, which is it? Which is it? Is it Jeremiah 19 or is it John 3.16? Is it that God never even imagined child sacrifice? Or is it that the good news is child sacrifice? The good news is that God gave his son. Look at this, Jeremiah 19 verse 5 in the NLT. They have built pagan shrines to Baal. And there they burn their sons as sacrifices to Baal. I have never commanded such a horrible deed. It never even crossed my mind to command such a thing. Which raises the question, what's going on here? If we're ever going to understand the sanctuary, beloved, we're going to have to understand this point. It was never about us bringing an offering. Us bringing a sacrifice, us appeasing or placating or assuaging the wrath of an angry God who demands our best and our brightest. Oh, come on. Of course, that is exactly what the children of Israel thought because by the time we get to the New Testament, Jesus shows up, he's like, hey, you guys have sort of turned this thing upside down. Take this stuff out of here. You made my father's house a den of thieves. You've missed the point. And the point, clearly, Because God, as we started off, I don't want your sacrifices. Keep them at home. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I already own the cattle on a thousand hills. Okay, well, what's going on here then? God, we're confused. How can you say out of one side of your mouth, please bring sacrifices, and out of the other side of your mouth, please don't? We're confused. Well, it all comes together when we understand that God does not desire sacrifice. He provides it. Can someone say amen? Yahweh Yareh. The Lord will provide. The Lord is not the one who asks for us to make a great sacrifice. He is the one who himself provides the great sacrifice. And right on this point, I need you to give me the last few minutes of your attention here. Because this is giant. The gospel is not a three-party arrangement. You know, what? You lost me there. Okay. We'll keep you. So which is the gospel here? Is this the gospel or is this the gospel? 
is the gospel that there's three parties, God, sinners, and Jesus. And God was really wanting to pour his wrath out on sinners. But Jesus stepped in and said, no, 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 I'll I'll do it instead. And God's like, all right, well, I really want to take my wrath out on those sinners, but instead I'll take my wrath out on you. And so Jesus becomes the equivalent of God's whipping boy, and he whips Jesus up until he's tired and so he can let the sinners go free. Is that the gospel? I'm telling you right now, beloved, if that's the gospel, that's not good news. If that's what the Bible is teaching, man, that is not good news in any way, shape, or form. Or is the gospel a two-party arrangement? There's just God and sinners. Well, look at what I did here. Just so you could be crystal clear. How can we harmonize? I never even thought of child sacrifice and God so loved the world. How can we harmonize that with God saying to Abraham, hey, come and offer your boy because that's the kind of God I am. No, God says I'm not that way. Beloved, listen. Jesus is God. Do you get it? You see, that's not just like some godlike figure hanging on the cross. That's not like, and this is huge, by the way, and I, I, I want to respectfully say that I know that there are a number of people who are persuaded by the non-Trinitarian position to come to this church. And we're happy to have you here, as long as you don't agitate. But I want to say this. You got a problem, a major problem right here. Because, as our well-meaning, but I think ultimately mistaken, non-Trinitarian friends say, oh, at some point in eternity past, Jesus came forth from the Father. Jesus came forth. So now what do you have? You have God the Father and the begotten Son. Okay, so who's dying on the cross? Well, it's not God the Father. It's the begotten Son. And the moment you introduce a distinction between these two, that's not God paying the price. That's God putting up somebody else. That's child sacrifice. But if it's God in the most full and complete and and superlative sense, if that's God hanging on the tree, this isn't God pouring out his wrath on some third party or some second party so that he can acquit the third party. This is God himself taking upon himself the consequence of sin, taking upon himself the penalty for sin. This isn't God requiring sacrifice. This is God becoming the sacrifice. And that's good news. In fact, that is the greatest good news conceivable. I leave you with one of my favorite statements from the pen of Ellen White. Man, this is a great one. Look at this. Had God the Father come to our world? Okay, so just reverse it here. We're going to reverse the whole story. Jesus doesn't come. God the Father comes instead, and Jesus remains in heaven. So you got the story, right? Instead of Jesus coming, God the Father comes to earth, and he becomes a man. Okay, so the Father becomes a man, Jesus remains in heaven. What would change? Look at what she says. Had the Father come to our world and dwelt among us, humbling himself, veiling his glory, that, his, that humanity might look upon him, the history that we have of the life of Christ would not have been changed. In other words, the Gospels would read exactly like they do now. Every word would be the same. Every sentence would be the same. Every parable would be the same. Because, my friends, Jesus is just as much God as the Father is. And Jesus is God hanging on the cross, not asking us to give up our children, not asking us, oh, you got to bring me because I'm a bloodthirsty God. Bring me lots of stuff I need. I lust for more. No, 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 no. God is saying, I provide the sacrifice. I become the sacrifice. I'm not the great taker. I'm the great giver. In every act of Jesus, in every lesson of his instruction, we are to see and to hear and to recognize God. In sight, in hearing, in effect, it is the movements of the Father. If Jesus would have remained in heaven and the Father had come, the Gospels would not be one bit different. And the reason is, Jesus is fully and completely God. And if God is hanging on the cross, if God is bearing the penalty of our sin, beloved, that is hugely good news. Can you say amen? The God of Scripture is not a bloodthirsty God, but a bleeding God. Night and day. He doesn't require blood. The God of Scripture gives it. And so as we come to the sanctuary, if we're going to ever understand what's happening in the sanctuary, we will have to 
disabuse our mind of every possible residual idea that God needs to be assuaged, that God needs to be placated, that God needs to be won over. And we show how sincere and serious we are by intensifying the level of our sacrifice. God says, you don't get it. The gospel is not and never has been about the level of your sacrifice. It's always been about my sacrifice, my willingness to take upon myself the consequence and penalty of the sin. Can the church say amen? Amen. Beloved, I want to tell you, you don't need to come to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John to hear the gospel. I had several people say to me, man, we're going to study the Old Testament for a year? For a year. We're going to be in the Old Testament for a year. Man, we're going to need grace. We're going to need the gospel. We're going to need the... Beloved, we're in, we're in Genesis, we're in Exodus, and we are being flooded. We are being saturated with the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. Together. Father in heaven, the response of worship, the response of surrender, it is the appropriate response. And it is the response that we feel compelled to give. Not compelled by some external requirement that you force upon us. Father, we are compelled by our own heart. We are compelled by the reality of seeing who you really are and the kind of God that you are. And Father, we are aware now that every demand that you have on us, every requirement, every request, every seeming sacrifice is only but a faint reflection of the great sacrifice that you have already offered in yourself. Father, help us to live lives worthy of the high calling to which we have been called and of the God who has called us to it. Father, Father, at at time in our experiences, we might have to hear David, David, Abraham, Abraham, Moses, Moses, when we are misunderstanding the nature of the situation. But Father, let us ever and eternally look to Calvary and to see there that we have not secured salvation for ourselves but you have secured it for us. Yahweh Yaire, the Lord has provided. And it is in his name that we pray. Let everyone say, Amen.